Richard, I'm so excited that we are going to, we had the opportunity to talk to someone today about mental health and, and um, mental illness and all kinds of, uh, we're going to talk about a variety of things today right. in this interview with Max Gutman. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about this conversation. Right. Tell me about him. Well, you know what? Max is on the line. All Max, right. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're very excited about you being here. Um, you know, I, I know we have so much to talk about uh, today, uh, but why don't you take a, a minute and introduce yourself, tell us um, where you are, what you're doing, and um, whatever else you would like to share with us. Sure. Well, I'm based out of New York. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker. I am a psychotherapist, community activist. Um, I, am a, I consider myself a peer of the peer movement. I am also a, a recovery specialist. I believe in recovery. I believe in mental health, mental health awareness, promoting disabling stigma, all of that. Uh, I am very passionate about mental health, you can say that. Fantastic. Fantastic. So we share that in common. Correct. Matt, we're in New York. I'm based out of Westchester County, slightly north of New York City, north, just north of the Bronx. Okay. All right. Yep. Excellent. Remember it. Yeah. Okay. So now you mentioned that you were a peer um, as well as a counselor. Correct. I believe they call it a prosumer. A what? A, a prosumer. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know uh, that someone, term. Someone who is both a licensed clinician and a, a peer or a uh, recovery specialist, someone with a mental health diagnosis. So you have consumer, consumer services, and then I believe you have prosumer, which is oh, someone okay. who's a licensed um, either social worker, or psychologist, but also someone who has a disclosed mental health diagnosis. Okay. Okay. Now, in your in your website, um, you have an article about the um, I forget the exact title, but it's <laughs> something about uh, from first episode to hospitalization. Okay. Is that you? For my blog, yes, correct. Okay. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that really gave me the best context um, for what we're going to be discussing this morning. All right. All right. Well, I believe that blog article was about the activation of my symptoms and the first onset of schizophrenia, my diagnosis, first episode psychosis, whatever you want to call it. Um, it was really, I think that was more of a narrative-based, like mm -hmm. story-based format yes. of exactly what my thinking was around my symptoms, my disbelief that anything was really happening to me, but knowing something was happening, something very different, um, and the evolution sort of, of, or the blossoming of my symptoms into full-blown schizophrenia, and eventually into my recovery. I'm not sure if that specific post talked about my recovery or just me ending up in the hospital. Um, sometimes the end, you know, where they end and where they begin, I don't always remember. Right. Sure. Now, what, you mentioned something there that was really interesting because you said that, you know, as, as your symptoms were emerging, that part of you, it's like you, you didn't think that anything was happening, but at the same time, you thought that something was happening. Sure, sure. Well, as you know, a lot of folks with um, a schizophrenia diagnosis, 
they 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 don't believe they're sick okay but you know something's happening to you i felt that at that time i had supernatural powers um uh, i could hear people's thoughts they could hear my thoughts i could communicate with them without them being in the room but it seems like that was just the normal course of what was supposed to happen to me in my life um, at the time, like, oh, this is just the next step. This is this is what's next. I can do this now. Just like I could ride a bike or learning how to uh, drive a car. Now I can speak to people through my mind. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, yeah. what I found fascinating, first of all, I think it's a fabulous contribution. I mean, I, I, I think it's a wonderful narrative. Um, very helpful. I wish more people would read it. How did you know? You know, we typically... The stereotypic um, interpretation of schizophrenia is a break with reality. How, right. how did you know? I mean, you knew you were having the thoughts. At first, they seemed rational, reasonable. Mm-hmm. You were aware that they weren't. How I, you- yeah, it's complex. It's complex. I actually just completed a book about this. It's it's it's. I took this blog post and I developed it into a larger narrative basically Mm -hmm. from the moment i really right before the symptoms started to activate up until my my tenure with social work and it really took 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 us through the uh, the the full course of the illness um or at least what i've dealt with so far and to answer your question it's interesting. It's 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 very hard to describe. It's as if you you know that. Well, okay. Let me put it in this context. I've had family members that had have had schizophrenia. I had an uncle and an aunt. An uncle I've never met because of his diagnosis. He was too paranoid to leave his adult home. And an aunt and was have been well aware of what this illness looks like in the community but when it's happening to you it it attaches to a lot of your characteristics it attaches to a lot of aspects of your reality so at that time i was in a very precarious situation at my school um and the illness sort of inserts itself into the precarity of things and things just seem more and more hard to wrap your mind around. But at the same time, you still have a mind. You're still in reality. You're still there. It's just things seem more more difficult to explain to people. That's why I think things take on a double meaning or have a double meaning, triple meaning sometimes. It's, it's as if you can't put language to things. And that's what my book is about. It's University on Watch. And I really talk as an English major who was studying language at the time. My psychosis attached to my language receptors, I believe. Um, and language just became more and more intricate, more and more profound. But at the same time, and conversely, conversely, less profound. I was speaking what I thought was brilliant thoughts. But um, really, the profundity of it was was quite low. It, I was made incomprehensible. Mm. That's, a, that's really interesting because, you know, I think that 
you know, of course, we're talking about um, schizophrenia specifically here, but I think this is the case with a lot of mental health diagnoses, whether we're talking about depression or bipolar disorder or even ADHD and autism, you know, there's this idea that um, maybe there's a little bit of something about that person that's different than um, others, but it's just part of life. It, and, and, and I like what you said that it sort of attaches to your own characteristics and who you are. Um, and so it becomes real specific to you. Sure. And if you're depressed, the sadness will attach to whatever you're sad about. Um, it attaches to the trauma that you're, that you're encountering, that you've gone through. If you're anxious, it attaches to what you're nervous about. So sure, you always have to differentiate the person from the diagnosis. But in a sense, the diagnosis, it really is, a, it, it, it leaves room for, or it, it allows for the consumer to really find meaning in it. So if you, you know, you look at the DSM, it's very laid out, it's very prescribed, but at the same time, it's open to what the consumer is feeling. Like his or her personal trauma has to do with each of these set of symptoms. Right. When you're sad about this, you're sad about that for six months, or you're sad about that for whatever length of time this book prescribes. Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't necessarily rule out your life, but you have to you really have to look and and allow the system or or these these diagnostic labels to really to find sense in them. You can. Yeah. Well it makes sense that yeah. that's why you know, so many people have a difficult time even recognizing that they have some of these issues going on because it just becomes so in, entrenched in who they are and how they right. see the world that it's just, this is just normal. Yeah. Like you said, I you're love, riding a bike or driving a car. This is just this, the way that you think about things. I loved language. And then I thought that I was going to be the next um, Derrida or Foucault and invent new language. And I was running around the university trying to trying to do just that and as the as the diagnosis developed or as the disease process developed and the diagnosis lengthened rather um it became more and more difficult to figure out why i wasn't able to achieve what i was setting out to do mm -hmm. and i think that's the issue it's the problem it's what you can't do sure we all have our stuff we all have our 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 um our struggles but the idea is it's when it becomes a problem for you right so people can have any sort of interpretation of reality but it's when that reality becomes unachievable um when you can't reach your goals when you're not achieving what you're setting out to do that it becomes a problem and that was the problem for me i wanted to invent a new word but i just couldn't do it because my psychosis was deepening so mm -hmm. much that I couldn't get underneath it to get my work done. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's, that's very interesting. The impairment portion. Yeah, the impairment portion. What, and, and now the what you were referring to earlier with peer, um, right. now that, that makes sense because I'm sure that, that you being able to share some of that and articulate it in the way that you can uh, is going to be really helpful for some of the patients and clients that you work with. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Um, it's interesting, you know, I think right now we have a ways to go um, in terms of peers really doing the work that they need to do. I didn't rise up through the ranks of the peer movement. I, when I say I'm a peer, 
I mean, I, I, I'm, look, I'm young. I, I, I wasn't born in 1950. wasn't born in 1960. Um, I became a clinician first. And I became a clinician first because of stigma. I was afraid to disclose my diagnosis. I thought that if I had shared that along the way throughout my education, coming back to school, that the shadow of, of institutionalization and, and all that stigma that, that's there would have, would have really stopped me in my tracks. People wouldn't have allowed me to do what I was setting out to do. But after I became more confident, um, more established, I said, I really do want to be authentic about who I am and what I am. Right. Um, and I'm a person with a diagnosis. And like you said, people can benefit from that. So after sharing that, um, it, I did some peer work and it was really great, but I did notice that there's still stigma out there and peers aren't always able to do what they set out to do, whether it's because they've been co-opted into the system, their voices aren't as, um, as authentic as, as they were before they entered the system of care. They're no longer just autonomous peers out there in a movement, they've become a part of the system. And when you're a part of the system, the system sort of speaks for you sometimes and your voice becomes silenced. And I noticed that and experienced that myself. Um, while you're talking about institutionalization, um, I was struck by uh, the deinstitutional movement that took place in the 80s. And you make the comment that though we tried to replace it with community mental health, systems, that those systems are becoming obsolete. Um, but you also talk about re-institutionalization. Could you clarify those terms, re-institutionalization, and then go on to talk about the failure or the uh, lack of success, maybe, of the community mental health system? What sure, is re-institutionalization? Sure. Re I think I, I'm almost, almost not 100% sure in, it's still early over here, um, but I, I think I refer to it as neo-institutionalization. Neo. Neo-institutionalization, which is in a sense of re-institutionalization. Um, but here, let me clarify that. So you had the institutionalization where folks are coming out of the hospitals, right? The community is supposedly opening up its arms to folks um, with a mental health diagnosis. They're out there, they're starting to live in adult homes. You know that didn't work out, but they're there. Um, but in a sense, because the system isn't set up for these folks, they either recycle back into the system, mm -hmm. right? Because right. there's only so far you can go um, or achieve without sometimes the system bouncing back into it or recycling back into it, or the community is just unwelcoming. It's, it's, um, it's not, people aren't taught how to survive in it. They're sort of taught how to, how to have hope and recovery, but it's not just about hope and recovery, it's about healing. And it's about learning to live and be successful in your life. Um, so that's what I mean by neo-institutionalization. It's, it's as if you're institutionalized by your diagnosis, by the community whilst living in it. You're no longer by in a gate, surrounded by the gates of an institution, but by the gates of stigma 
and by 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 a community that's truly not set up for for your needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting, and and I know that um, I will assume it's very similar in, in New York as it is here, in that you know, there there are a few community mental health agencies here, but you know due to bureaucracy and red tape and procedure and process and all of that, it becomes uh, a, a system that is extremely difficult to navigate. And it's a system that, you know, people who, who are truly in need, you know, are unable to, you know, truly access all the services that they need, that, that they, you know, that they really need right. um, in life. It's true. It's true. But, you know, what are the answers though? You know, I don't even know I, 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 we haven't, we haven't really developed a framework to really look at like how to do that. Like Absolutely. how do we make it work for people? Right, right. Um, I, I don't have the answers, all the answers myself. I have theories. I have theories. I, I try to write and write and write and see what I can come up with. Um, but it's very hard. You're right. It's very hard. We're living in the shadows of institutionalization. Um, and it's as if, it's if, as if the institutionalization is stalled and, the shadow is looming over us, and we don't know how we, we don't know how to make it make the shadow lift, and and the light shine through freedom, really, and people's liberties. Right, right. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and I, I, I do like the the. I like it that you you were pointing out the issue of, of stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we talk about stigma mm-hmm. um, often on the on the podcast and. We, we will occasionally get uh, feedback from listeners and every, um, oftentimes positive feedback that yes, the stigma is, is a problem and everything. But we actually get, interestingly enough, maybe we, we get uh, feedback from some listeners who, who deny that there's a stigma, that you know, to even talk about the fact that there's a stigma is to perpetuate a stigma that we shouldn't be perpetuating and that we shouldn't even talk about it. Um, do you, it, it sounds like you are of the opinion that, um, you know, that the stigma exists and we need to talk about it so that we can overcome that barrier to, um, again, that, that really interesting perspective of neo-institutionalization where we're institutionalized in the community due to the stigma. Right. Yeah, so it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating because the, I, I think it's really difficult. I, I have really had a hard time finding a way to uh, argue against the idea uh, of, there being a stigma, um, <laughs> despite the fact that we've, you know, heard from a number of people. So, um, they are. yeah, <laughs> because it, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it really is because uh, th- this clarifies it some. Because what you're saying is that in our current system, and I'm guessing that the that the system in New York is is it comparable to Florida's in that we have very little long term care here, right? Uh, inpatient long term care. Um, we've we've shifted all that to the community mental health services, but they're overwhelmed, understaffed, mm-hmm. and they're not able to really. And I think that's the point you're making is that the current community mental health system is not capable of dealing with the problems confronting us. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I hate to use the word problems, but um, we um, have um, you have you have involuntary hospitalization in New York. Sure. Now here it's called the Baker Act. Um, so somebody can go in for a few days, but they're sent back out into a system that's not equipped to 
handle them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you need to get rid of the hospitals. We need hospitals. Right. I, I am not, I'm not an advocate for letting everybody out into the community that's not capable of surviving. Just like we can't discharge folks that need a heart bypass from uh, from the hospital. We can't discharge people who are um, a harm, you know, immediate threat of harming themselves or harming someone else into the community. But we're not, our hospitals also aren't equipped or geared or there isn't this philosophy of let's get people to the point where they don't need to be here anymore. Like I said, it's, it's hope and recovery is the motto of the New York State Mental Health System, Office of Mental Health. It's hope and recovery. You look at all the gates of the hospitals, it's plastered out there, right on the walls. And and really, recovery is an interesting word. I use it, but I only use it to, so I can speak with other people and they know what I'm saying. Um, just like, you know, we use certain language so people just get you. But the reality of it is, the real meaning of it is it, it doesn't speak to what I'm talking about. Speaking of healing and, and, and really being who you want to be um, and the person that you want to be and living the life that you choose. Recovery doesn't mean necessarily that. It means that, it means something else, I think. Yeah. What, what does it mean to you? Recovery to me means that the problem is alleviated or the problem is alleviated as best it can be. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're achieving your, your life's ambitions, your dreams, what you set out to do before you had a diagnosis. So, um, oh, I, see what I, you're think, I think there's a, there's a difference there. There's something but you're talking there. about, you're talking about recovery of life prior to your diagnosis. Well, right. No, it sounds like that's what he's going against that, that, the, the typical the definition of, of recovery is returning to the way that you were before. And what it sounds like you're saying is that once you have a diagnosis and you have some of this stuff happening, recovery means that you are, that the symptoms are alleviated and that you are, you know, not suffering from that, but not necessarily that you are who you were before the diagnosis. They don't have to be exactly who we were. We'll never be who we were yesterday or the day before that. But the passion, the zest for life, the 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 belief in yourself, all those convictions that you had that sort of disappear when you get a diagnosis, are returned to you. You, you they're reinstilled back into you, and the system isn't doing that. It's right. sort of saying you can survive now, or you're you're good enough to go. Um, you are. We've rehabbed you, but not necessarily. You're in a place where you want to be. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Exactly. So we get symptom relief. Right. right. Don't right. The person. Okay. Right. Correct. Right. Yeah, we're not getting the person back <clears throat> truly functional. We're just alleviating their symptoms, their active right. symptoms that are causing, um, you know, some immediate problem. Sure. Okay. Now, Max, another thing that I'm fascinated by is this whole area of language. Um, are you, uh, I could listen. I think I could listen endlessly um, <laughs> to what you're advocating about language. Um, a couple of things. You're talking about um, coming up with a, a different way of talking about all of this, right? Sure. Absolutely. Different. Okay. Um, how would that help? 
How would that help? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think it, it's rooted back in my my days of believing in language and inventing language. Because um, I've always believed that if you change the way we talk about things, it it inherently shifts what we what we believe and how we think in our possible the very possibilities of life are are enmeshed in language. Language is limitless. Right. And at the same time, you can't think out of it. So we're stuck in it. So if we're stuck in it and it's limitless, let's reach the very limits, the very apex of 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 change and changing the system and doing that. And how do we do that? Well, inventing new language or or reclaiming language. Either either or. Uh, I think both are very profound ways of going about it. When you reclaim language, it 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 recognizes the history of things. Says, "Look, that's what we had, and now this is where we're at, and this is why we did it." And and at the same time, we need to invent new language and say, "Hey, look, that's the goal. This is where we need to be. This is how we can talk about it. So, how are we going to get there?" Once you once you identify the endpoints, sometimes it's a little bit easier to identify the means of getting there. Yeah, that's really good. I, I think we've talked before on the podcast that um, you know when, when we try to talk about things, we we are automatically limited by our vocabulary. You know, sure. we, we talk about some of the challenges in working. You know, we both work with with children and adolescents, and you know, one of the big challenges is that they experience and and feel all the same feelings and thoughts and emotions that we do. But they're, they're right. They're restricted by their vocabulary. They don't right. know how to articulate it, and so. You know, if they grow up with, you know, whenever you feel bad like this, that's anger. Mm -hmm. Then everything, every time they feel upset about anything, it's going to be anger. Right. Um, so we need to broaden that vocabulary so that we have a better way, um, a more articulate way uh, of discussing some of these things that's sure. um, authentic and, and direct to what, uh, as you said, you know, what our ultimate goal really is. Right. Absolutely. And recovery would re be a good example. Right. To me, when I when I read about recovery, <clears throat> of course, like everybody else, I think we're talking about substance abuse. Right. Um, but 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 you 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 I encountered this word recovery, and it was a totally new concept for me, a, a different use, different meaning of the word. Right. And I think I think recovery is an excellent example of um, using language uh, to redefine the phenomenon. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Because yeah, I'd never thought about recovery the way you talk about it. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. People say, "Well, I don't want to re re r e dash this or r e dash that because I am who I who I who I need to be, and I am the authentic self." But the and, and I respect that. I respect that philosophy, and I also respect the idea that recovery can mean something very important to people. It can mean that, like we talked about before, your symptoms are better, the the, the deficit, whatever you didn't want there isn't there anymore, and if that means you're, you're a whole person and you're who you want to be, then that's great. But for me, um, it, it signals it signals a it's it signals a a greater dilemma for the entire mental health system and the status of things. And that's really the impetus of my work, where what drives me. Yeah, that's great, Max. When when you talk about renovating the system. 
Do you think it's possible? I mean, I struggle. I struggle every day with um, how we fund the mental health system through private insurance. Okay. Is it possible to do this with um, the, the way the mental health, the way the insurance industry is structured right now? Is it question. possible to accomplish what you want to accomplish when you talk about recovery or you talk about um, moving away from the this the current system? Sure. Uh, is it even possible with um, the way insurance is structured? Absolutely, because remember, we're talking about language. We're talking about education. We're not talking about dollars and cents. Um, I work in communities with a lot of money. A lot of money. Yeah, you and, do. <laughs> right? And and I've seen the most pervasive, disgusting um, examples of stigma and discrimination um, and people not getting the help that they truly need and disproportionate uh, people being served and, and, and racism. Um, very visible. Very visible. And I've also been working in the South Bronx in some areas that really need the help with some great folks that are doing great work. Why? Because one, at the level of education, at the level of, of their education as professionals, they got the, the philosophy of care that was needed to do the work that they need to do, to speak the language they need to speak, to come into the system in a place ready to do the work. And I think that money's great, sure, but um, I've worked in areas with a lot less funding, a lot less means, and I've seen some great work done. I think you have to come at it at the level of education, at the academy, in the university. Um, and, 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 and from there, really redevelop the culture, revamp it, carve it out from the inside out, and, and inscribe it with a new language, a new way of thinking. Yeah, I, I think that the the idea, one of the things we talk about in our parenting book is teach, don't um, punish. Um, and, you know, the idea of, of giving people this language, this vocabulary, this mm -hmm. ability to communicate what it is that's, that they're experiencing and feeling and thinking. Um, and that as we as we help people build these skills, they're going to be able to access better care because they're going to know what they need. Um, and those that can provide the care are going to know what to provide to, to You couldn't be more right about that. You couldn't be more right about that. It's about community access and integration, right? right? Access is everything. When you equip people with the right words, it triggers certain services. Um, it triggers certain benefits, right? If you're someone looking or requiring state benefits, it, it, it signals to your collaterals what you need in terms of support. It's everything. Right. Um, with, with people aren't armed with the right words, they don't get the help they need. Right, right. And that's why I like the, you know, discussing the difference between mental health and mental illness and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, some of those kinds of differences, because I think that as we talk about stigma and, and some of these things that sort of push, um, lead to some people marginalizing others. Um, you know, when you talk about mental illness, there's this, this air of um, danger or this air of let's keep, you know, separate. The, mm -hmm. But when we talk about mental health, we all have to deal with mental health. And, and you know, just that, that single difference in, in vocabulary can make a, make a major um, impact on 
you know, accessing care and the availability of care and the willingness of people to seek care. It's true. Um, I think it's going to take time. Like you said, it, illness sort of signals, you know, a an issue of precarity or a danger in mental health. We all have to deal with it. But then again, we all have to deal with danger, right? right. So yeah. it's, 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 I guess, getting us to the point where we're not afraid of the danger and presenting it as mental health, I guess, for a while until yeah. people buy into it and say, okay, this speaks to me. And then really saying, well, you know what? There's, a, there's another, there's, there's a deeper meaning here or a deeper message that we're not getting. And, and, and we really can't be afraid of danger. We really can't be afraid of illness. And that's something I talk about in my work a lot. Um, and that really, I think, distinguishes me from a, a few of the other prosumers out there. Um, people are all about, well, it's mental health, it's this, it's that. But we can't be afraid of our symptoms. They are symptoms. Right. right. Yeah. They are. And if we don't if we don't recognize them for what they are and how dangerous they can be and how destructive they can be, it'll destroy us. And we won't be able to do the work that we do and we won't be able to be who we are and who we want to be. So it's sure, yes, mental health, you're right, everyone has to deal with it, but everyone also has to deal with the dangers and the seriousness of of their illness too. Mental right. health is one thing, but illness is another. They both exist. Right. Yeah. I had a, a, a my major professor in grad school. Um, I, I remember one of the things he said that I'll never forget. One of the things there's, <laughs> there's a couple of things, but that was one. This is one of them. He said, um, he said, there, there's no, um, there's no mental illness line at McDonald's. And, you know, he said, you know, we're, we're dealing with these things all the time. Right. And so, you know, to, to imagine that these things are separate from you and that you can actually stay away from them mm -hmm. is an illusion. There's no way, as you said, you know, th there is a danger. There is a, um, you're going to encounter these things. And so um, we, we need to accept that. Mm -hmm. yeah, so. Mm -hmm. I agree. Speaking of vocabulary, tell me what, a, <clears throat> explain what a clinician crat is. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. Um, what well, I guess it's the prosumer that has sort of lost his way. Um, Wait, a prosumer the prosumer has lost the, his way. That has lost oh, okay. his way. Okay. Like, okay. you know, whenever you become, I think like the, like the peer who's become co-opted into the system, right. the clinician that is so entrenched in the system of care that they can't see beyond oh. how the system operates. Um, <clears throat> these are folks that sit at meetings and ju do just that. They, they sit at, at, um, county or state or, or, or they just, there's, they're empty suits, if you will, um, that are aware and know how to use a DSM, but couldn't, um, they know what it is, but they, <laughs> they couldn't work it out in the community if they could, you know, they really tried. Right. Um, they, these are folks that say, well, I. I've not only treated this person, I've treated their their son and their daughter. But then you have to say, well, why is their son and daughter in treatment? What did you do for their for their mother? So this didn't become a generational issue, you know? And, and the bureaucrat, right? Um, who who's so, you know, um immersed in his in, in the bureaucracy of things, the clinician crat, so is too so immersed in the system of care that they can't see beyond the limits and gates sure. of, the, of the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That, that's a danger in school psychology. 
Yeah. You know, that you get so entrenched in the system that you forget why you're doing it. Right. Right. Or how yeah. it works out there in the, in the reality. It's a good, good example. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And many of the mental health system, community mental health mm -hmm. workers, they serve the system. Right. The administrative system rather than the patient. Right. Yeah. You know, I can think of many times where, you know, we will do an evaluation for some agency mm -hmm. and we will refer them for mental health services and um, they'll go to a community mental health uh, agency and, you know, they have a few checkboxes. And if the person tells them the right answer to those checkboxes, they'll say, Yo, you don't need any treatment. And, you know, it was just right. the week before that we did this really comprehensive evaluation that says, yeah, you know what, treatment may be really good. Um, but because right. of the bureaucracy, because of the standard of care um, or the system of care, they, they don't get it. They, they right. don't get it. Mm -hmm. They don't get it. And, it, and they, don't, they just don't. Um, they can't see how it really works at the level of, of the people doing the work. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. The people that need it, the, the patients and the, right. and the families right. that need it. They don't, they don't see it at that level. It's just a, um, it's just a checkbox. Mm -hmm. So, right. well, so how long is it going to take you to accomplish this, Max? Oh, he likes to ask those kind of questions. <laughs> I can't do it on my own. Well, we're, we're going to be uh, advocates and disciples. So, um, yeah. it, it has really, this is one of those things that really has turned our heads. Um, it's one of the things that I think we've scratched around in right. that area a little bit, but you've given it um, a voice and you've given it, and I have to acknowledge, you've given us a vocabulary, right. um, a, a new way of using language and of thinking about it. Uh, we've, we've all been frustrated, I guess, for lack of a better term, with the community mental health system as it has evolved since the 1980s. Sure. Um, but this this really um, clarifies and uh, shines a light on it in a very different way. Yeah. I think you've made a great contribution. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, um, it really is. And maybe it took somebody with your background to see it a little more clearly. Yeah, with your experiences. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yep. So earlier you mentioned that you have a book that's coming out. Can you, it's uh, University on Watch. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, what is um, it? Yeah, it's really about, it's it's really how my story evolved. And like what you said earlier about symptoms and not knowing if what you're experiencing, when you're experiencing them, I really tried to come at it through a way, a story, like you're reading a story about someone's life. And because I've had a pre-existing diagnosis back in my high school days, I was able to talk about mental health in the book. So it's not as if I was, there was no language already there, no framework. So I was able to talk about something happening and put it in a mental health speak, if you will, because that existing framework was there, but not really put a label or a um, say, oh, this is, this is you know, a voice or this is um, a, a, an evolving delusional system. But you see it happening in the narrative. Uh, University on Watch is about when I was a graduate, uh, undergraduate applying for graduate school, um, I was declined and really thought that it had something to do with either language itself because of what was happening to me, or, um, or I didn't know. I just didn't know why I was declined. And that's really when the break happened. Um, and my, my attempt to put my life back together at that time was I said, I'm going to invent a new word. 
to overturn this decision, the admission decision. And this word in this paper that I put together called contesting admission, contesting the admission decision um, would turn things around. It would, it would really restore my life and put it back. It would, it would not only launch me into a program, I would be the person I'd want to be. Um, all the things in my life that were going wrong would go right. And everything was going wrong. Everything. Um, I was, as you know, when you get these symptoms activate, your relationships become more bizarre. You don't know why um, things are happening to you. And the narrative talks about that in in almost a double speak. In a it it provides the clinical language to really access it. And they, oh, I think I think this is what's happening, Dan. But at the same time, I don't give enough information for you to really know exactly if that's the case or not. Um, so you don't really know what happens until it's happening, yeah. until it. And that's what happened to me. I didn't know what was happening until I was in the hospital and they told me I had a diagnosis. Wow. And really in the book, you don't really know that that's the case until I'm in the hospital in the book. Right. And, wow. and the doctors are saying this and that, and I'm still in a state of disbelief. And then it follows my, um, really the story into my recovery and why I came to really develop this framework and this language in this belief that we can change the system that's through changing cool. language itself. Wow, that's terrific. Well, and um, when will the book be available? Um, it should be available next month in stores. Fantastic. Oh, would it be in stores too? It should be, yes. It'll definitely oh, cool. be. Yeah, it'll definitely be. You could go, go to any Barnes & Noble and order University on Watch. I was going to say, are. I was going to say that there are a few bookstores left. <laughs> I know. Uh, I haven't put them all out of business yet. <laughs> And right. it's hard to get books into bookstores. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so kudos. Congratulations well, to you. Yeah, you. that's fantastic. Well, um, let our uh, listeners know where they can follow you, if you have social media, website, or anything like that, that where they can follow you um, to learn more about the book and to, to keep an eye out for when it's available. Sure, sure. Um, well, there's, you referenced my blog earlier, mentalhealthaffairs.blog. Um, that's mentalhealthaffairs.blog. And my uh, practice, which is at mentalhealthaffairs.org. I'm also on Twitter, I think at Maxwell Gutman. And um, probably a few other areas around the web, but you'll have to find me or I'll find you. <laughs> I'll try well, I will, I'll put a link to all of those in the show notes so folks can, Thank you. Uh, can just go to the show notes and, and click there and get to your Twitter or your uh, website or blog or uh, practice site or, or yeah. whatever. So. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. Well, yeah, no problem. Well, Max, it was terrific talking with you. You, you certainly have to stay in, in touch. And you know, when the book comes out, um, it, you know, we could talk again and, and kind of spend yeah. some time specific with the book, and that'd be fantastic. Oh, excellent, folks! Thank you for okay. having me. Real pleasure. All right. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Max. No Thank problem. you for your work. Thank, Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye bye.